Elvis. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. John Henry told his old captain that a man ain't nothing but a man. Before I let your steel gang down, I will die with the hammer in my hand. Oh, Lord, die with the hammer in my hand. The stories about Dwayne Johnson are insane. As a teenager, he ran a jewelry theft ring in a posh shopping district in Waikiki. His crew of juvenile thieves snatched and grabbed whatever they could get their hands on, and then pawned their haul for cold, hard cash. As a result, he was arrested nearly 10 times before he turned 17. He made the improbable transition from stealing expensive rocks on rings to becoming the rock, the people's champion in the wrestling ring. And then he took that winning charm directly to the silver screen, where he made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Arthur Bell performing John Henry from 1939. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Joe Pitka's Space Jam. And why would I play you that specific slice of Toon Squad cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie on November 17th, 1996. And that was the day that Dwayne The Rock Johnson made his televised debut in a pay-per-view wrestling match. A monumental moment for a man who was once a street criminal. A man who would soon raise the people's eyebrow, drop the people's elbow, and lay the smackdown on the candy-ass world of Hollywood if you smell what I'm cooking. On this episode, jewelry theft rings, snatch and grab jobs, the people's eyebrow, and the man they call The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season five, Hollywoodland. There's always that one kid who can't wait to tell the other little kids there's no Santa Claus. When that fucking kid tells my eight-year-old, I'm going to be pissed. But I digress. Dwayne The Rock Johnson's friend, Randy, was that kid. In their fifth grade classroom, the boys were talking about the wrestling match they watched the night before. The World Wrestling Federation, WWF, had arisen as the dominant promoter of pro wrestling in America, securing huge television contracts poaching all the top talent from other leagues and broadcasting professional matches into millions of American homes. In the 1980s, WWF wrestlers were huge celebrities. You could see them in Hollywood movies. You could buy their action figures at Toys R Us. Wrestling was show business, but it billed itself as a sport, not as entertainment. The kids in Dwayne Johnson's class talked about it the way their dads talked about the Patriots the morning after a game. Dwayne's friend Randy, though, that kid rolled his eyes. You guys know it's fake, right? Little Dwayne Johnson seethed. In his family, they didn't use the F word, and they certainly didn't cop to the scripted nature of professional wrestling. Not to a mark. 
They kept the illusion that everything about wrestling, the moves, the characters, the matches, was very much real. Dwayne tried to keep his mouth shut, but Randy was calling Dwayne's dad a liar, a fraud. I mean, sure, it was true, but that didn't make it okay. And then Randy turned toward Dwayne. Tell him, Dwayne, Randy said. It's all fake, right? Dwayne Johnson had wrestling in his blood. His father, Rocky Johnson, was the first black wrestler to win the Georgia Heavyweight Championship. Now he was working some West Coast gigs as the tag team partner of Samoan wrestler Peter Mavia. Rocky Johnson had trained as a boxer, sparring with guys like George Foreman and Muhammad Ali, but he gained some popularity in wrestling, working the regional circuits in the late 1960s. When Rocky got to town jet-lagged from the flight from Japan, Peter Maivia invited him to crash at his house, and they were friendly, but they weren't friends. Wrestling was a business. You didn't let things get personal. The illusion that it was all real was part of it. And so was the way a group of wrestlers would barnstorm a region for a few weeks before moving on. A wrestler couldn't be seen at the diner with the guy who was going to knock the shit out of that night. The good guy, AKA the face, didn't pal around with the bad guy, AKA the heel. For Peter Maivia, it was more than that. Guys in the business had problems. Drinking, drugs, violence. He was no saint himself. Normal folks didn't get into wrestling. So there weren't many wrestlers that were normal, therefore there weren't many wrestlers that Peter Maivia wanted to hang around with. And there certainly weren't many he wanted hanging around his daughter. So when Rocky Johnson started flirting with Peter Maivia's daughter, Peter did his best to shut it down. Unfortunately, this match was scripted. They fell in love and ran off to get married without Maivia's blessing. Two years later, in time to meet his grandson, little Dwayne, Peter Maivia admitted defeat. His daughter had married a wrestler. Rocky Johnson took his family all over the country, barnstorming on the various regional circuits. The kids switched schools often, which was just as well. Dwayne had a habit of getting into trouble quick. The new school in Connecticut marked a period of stability and prosperity for the Johnsons. When Vince McMahon consolidated the regional circuits into the WWF, Rocky Johnson, little Dwayne's dad, was one of the wrestlers he signed. All the kids in Dwayne and Randy's class had seen Dwayne's dad wrestling on television. If anyone could say whether or not the sport was fake, it was Dwayne. Tell them, Randy insisted. Dwayne looked around. The teacher was late, and all eyes were on him. It's easier to show you, he said. Dwayne stood up and motioned for Randy to come closer. Randy hesitated, but he couldn't chicken out now. He stepped to Dwayne, who picked Randy up like nothing and flipped him. And the other kid's jaws dropped. Held upside down, Randy laughed nervously. It was fake, right? This is a pile driver, Dwayne said. Even as a kid, he knew all the moves. Most importantly, he knew the key part of the move was to squeeze your opponent's head between your legs, making sure no part of their head extended past the bottom of your thighs. That's how you kept the other guy safe. And when you seem to slam his head into the ground, you're actually landing on your own ass. But Dwayne had to make it look real. He had to do his part to keep up the mystique. So he let Randy's head extend a little too far. Dwayne dropped, taking his inverted friend with him. And when he came down, Randy's head smacked into the tile floor. Randy lay there, stunned. He was selling it. He could almost see the little chirping birdies circling his skull. And then he gripped his head and bawled. And the other kids glared at Dwayne. 
What did he have to do that for? When the teacher arrived, Randy played it down. And the other kids were quick to rat Dwayne out. He didn't argue when the teacher sent him to the principal's office. He could have seriously hurt his friend, and he didn't know why he did it. His dad wouldn't have done it that way. He'd have kept up the illusion that it was all real and charmed them and pulled off a move that convinced the whole class that wrestling was real without harming a hair on anyone's head. Things got messy when he didn't stick to the script. People got hurt when he let it get personal. By the time Dwayne had his next in-school encounter with wrestling, the salad days of his family's time in Connecticut were only a memory. Rocky was back out on the road. They moved from Hawaii to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. But much to Dwayne's disappointment, they got there too late from trial for the football team. He decided football was where his athletic talents lay. In his sophomore year of high school, he was dreaming of college scholarships and a pro career. But with football off the table that year, though, Dwayne was recruited by the school's wrestling coach, which was understandable. Dwayne Johnson was jacked. He didn't know the first thing about real wrestling. He stared at the headgear and pads. He'd never seen anyone put on protective gear to wrestle. Protection was the other guy knowing what he was doing. It was a work, a show. It was all an illusion, and the lack of headgear and padding made it look even more real. Suited up, Dwayne walked into the gym, and there was no entrance music. And rather than erupt in applause, the rest of the team went quiet. They'd seen the new kid in the hallways and noticed he was tall, but they figured his broad shoulders were padded out by his fresh-off-the-rack clothes. This was the 90s, and the style was bulk. And in nothing but a unitard, the sophomore noob was bigger than the team's heavyweight captain. The coach paired Dwayne with the captain for his first practice match, and the other wrestlers gravitated toward the pair as they started to grapple. Dwayne's mind rattled through a hundred possible moves his dad had taught him. Double leg kicks, sleeper holds, flying elbow drops. He toyed with his opponent for a minute as the team cheered their captain on against this new kid. If they're rooting against you, you must be the heel. So Dwayne turned heel. He swept the captain into a belly-to-belly -belly suplex in an easy pin. The crowd murmured and nobody clapped. At dinner that night, his dad asked him about practice. Dwayne said he didn't think wrestling was for him. Real wrestling, it turned out, was boring. Kulakawa Boulevard in Waikiki is where the beautiful people come to spend their time and their money. It runs along Kuhio Beach, and if it weren't for the gleaming four-star hotels, you could see Waikiki Bay. You can hear it, though, the waves lapping the beach. If you aren't from around here, and if you're shopping on Kulakawa Boulevard, you probably aren't from around here, it can be overwhelming. The sound of the surf and the salt smell of the ocean sun so bright it's as if you're on another planet and from behind every shop window beautiful expensive things beckon gucci chanel prada rolex cartier and they're too much money but your whole trip is an indulgence a celebration that you've made it you're the kind of person who could afford those things and what's a little money and what better place to buy a beautiful thing than paradise you wouldn't know it to look at him, but the guy who's 6'2", 225, he's just 14 years old. When he started at his last school, the kids thought he was a very obvious undercover cop. He fits in here, good looking, sharp dresser. 
The clothes he bought on five-finger discount at the mall where security was lax. Not like these stores. Only an idiot would try to lift something from these stores. And he's not an idiot. But once the merchandise is on the street, it's easier to snatch. You step out of the store, your wallet's lighter, but you have one more beautiful thing to call your own. You blink and squint in the Hawaiian sun. And maybe you contemplate a swim that afternoon, a cocktail at the bar. Your real life feels very far away. The boy is walking towards you, but your head is somewhere else. He bumps into you with shoulders so broad, it's tough to get out of his way. He apologizes, very sweet, very sincere. You forget about him instantly, dazzled by the beauty of the island, the sound and smell of the ocean. You don't notice that your bag feels lighter. Half a block down, the boy hands the beautiful, expensive thing to another boy who passes it off to another. And they spend their day this way. Watch the tourists bump and grab, pass, pass again. They're careful, but only by teenage boy standards. They think of themselves as invincible, and they're sure they can't be caught. When they decide they have enough, Dwayne Johnson and his friends take all the things they've stolen to another part of Honolulu, a part the beautiful tourists don't go to. They visit the pawn shops, selling off the items in small batches to give the pawn shop owners plausible deniability. It was my mother's, they say, my aunt's. I got it from my girlfriend, but we broke up. The pawnbrokers buy the expensive things for a fraction of retail. They say goodbye to the boys like they won't see them the next day with another hot item and another sob story about dead aunts or cheating girlfriends. In the cramped apartment block, their mothers and aunts, the actual people who take care of them, sit and wait and worry, as if they don't have enough to worry about already. There's the past due rent and how much their husbands have been drinking. And now this, worrying that when the phone rings, it'll be the police saying, we've got Dwayne down at the station again, or we caught Dwayne with his hand in some lady's purse on Kulakawa Boulevard. The sad thing is, the boys think they're doing it for their moms. They always slip a couple bills into their mom's wallets to help with the rent. And they think they're sneaking in that their moms don't know, but of course they do. Moms, no. They'd give all the money back in a heartbeat if it meant not having to worry. In the end, the math didn't add up for Dwayne Johnson and his family. Dwayne was arrested nearly 10 times by the age of 17. His father had left the WWF and was back on the regional circuits, back living hand to mouth. And the thing about working the circuits is, you've got to move along after a couple weeks. Keep it fresh. Don't let the audiences get bored with your gimmick. They'd stayed in Hawaii too long. Rocky Johnson was getting buried, and undercard matches meant less money. Less money meant more problems. Like the padlock and the eviction notice taped to the door. It was just as well. Fights dried up. Dwayne was one arrest away from the kind of charges his mother couldn't talk the police out of. So the Johnsons headed back to the mainland, and Rocky headed back out on the circuits. Dwayne was sent to live with a friend of his dad's, a former wrestler named Bruno Lauer in Memphis. And the idea was to give Dwayne some stability, a chance to straighten out. But a former wrestler and a 15-year-old kid who looked like a full-grown man were quickly out making the scene in Memphis. Like out on Broad Avenue, a strip of honky-tonks and bars that had seen better days, a man came inside the beer joint, all shakes and jitters. This was the late 80s. Crack was the cheap fix of choice. The guy was shouting, Anybody want to buy a car? I got a 77 Thunderbird I'm looking to sell. A smart man knows you don't buy a used car from a crackhead. But Dwayne Johnson was just 15 and out drinking. 
he wasn't interested in making smart decisions. And his guardian, Bruno, wasn't about to pump the brakes on this idea. Dwayne asked the crackhead how much he wanted for the Thunderbird. 70 bucks. Dwayne said he had 40 on him. And the crackhead handed over the keys in exchange for two crumpled 20s and a promise to get the rest. Dwayne and Bruno were amazed at their luck. The car was a beater, but you couldn't beat the price. And they loaded in, cranked up the country station, and started cruising down the strip. They didn't make it far before they heard a noise coming from the back seat. Dwayne craned his neck around, and there, passed out on the floor of the Thunderbird, was another crackhead. Dwayne pulled over and left the guy stranded by the side of the road. As he eased it back out onto the highway, the E-light on the fuel gauge blinked on. But when they got to the gas station, they realized the crackhead hadn't given them the key to the gas cap. Dwayne and Bruno ditched it in the Burger King parking lot, and the police found it there a few days later. It had been reported stolen. Dwayne figured 40 bucks was a small price to pay to learn a lesson about buying cars off crackheads. Next time he needed wheels, he'd go to a used car lot like any other Merc. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. A 12-foot box van rolled into the parking lot of a used car dealership in Memphis, Tennessee. It was mid-afternoon. The driver and his passenger climbed out, and the manager of the dealership strolled out of the little office to meet them. The salesman on the lot tried to hide their annoyance. The boss should know better than to divert a willing Mark's attention in the middle of a pitch. They were annoyed, too, about this latest promotional idea and what it cost. He could cover a lot of bonus commissions with that money. Salesmen sold cars not stunts. The driver asked the manager where to set up. Dead stock and late models had been crammed together on the outer edges of the lot to clear a big patch of blacktop. Shuffling the cars around to create the space meant the salesman had to stay late the night before, which didn't help their attitude. The guys off the truck nodded and went around the back. At least they weren't asking the salesman to help set up. Building a wrestling ring wasn't something they wanted the marks to see. Everything was calibrated to minimize the impact without looking like anyone was landing soft. But when a body got dropped, the crash resonated through the ring, and the crowd felt it in their teeth. At the Waffle House down the block, Dwayne Johnson finished his lunch. He was a three-meal-a-day regular here. The food wasn't good, but it was edible, and it was cheap. He was in the WWF, but only in its minor leagues. He made $40 a match, more than he made playing football, but not enough to live large. He'd grown up like this, on the road between matches, two-bit hotels, and envelopes of cash that were never as thick as his dad expected. Dwayne paid his lunch bill, said so long to the waitresses and the cook, and they all knew his name. He invited them to the match. It was free, paid for by the car dealership to bring Marks in. Dwayne shouldered his gear bag and walked over to the gig. In the used car lot, Dwayne offered to help the guys set up the ring. It wasn't expected of him, but it was a decent thing to do, to offer, and the guy said leave it to the professionals. The words stuck in Dwayne's head. He was a professional after all, but this was his second professional career. The word didn't carry the glamour he'd imagined when he was a kid. Today it was a used car dealership. Tomorrow night they'd set up at a flea market, and Saturday was the big gig at the state fair. Name guys from the WWF were coming in for that, and Dwayne would be expected to let them go over. He tried to remember if his dad had ever been this buried, but his dad's time coming up was back before Dwayne was even born. And the manager told Dwayne he could suit up in the office. 
Dwayne sat down next to one of the salesmen and laced up his boots as the guy sipped his coffee and side-eyed him. And they were both in the same spot. Two guys working a job. But he couldn't say it like that. He couldn't let on that wrestling was a job, just like selling cars. Putting on his boots and fixing his hair, Dwayne was in character. He'd been in character eating his lunch. He'd been in character the minute he stepped out of the two-bit motel room and into the muggy Memphis heat. And maybe he'd been in character his whole life. Dwayne Johnson had bought him a year earlier, when he was cut from the Calgary Stampede practice squad at the age of 23. He flew back to Tampa and moved back in with his parents. He struggled with depression. Until then, he'd had a chance. There were guys who bootstrapped their way from the practice squad to the starting lineup. And there were players who made the leap from the Canadian Football League to the NFL. But Dwayne had fallen out of the bottom of professional football and there was no way back in. He had to decide on something else. So he decided on wrestling. When Dwayne told his father he wanted to train to be a professional wrestler, Rocky Johnson said no. He didn't want that life for his son. He still believed Dwayne would land a spot in the NFL. It took some time for Dwayne to get his father to come around, and even more for Rocky to agree to train him. It was natural. Rocky had been teaching Dwayne wrestling moves since before the kid could walk. But they weren't playing around anymore. Rocky demanded total commitment, and Dwayne delivered. For five months, he trained constantly. He bulked up, and then Rocky put in a call to Pat Patterson, an agent with the WWF. Pat knew Rocky, of course, and he'd wrestled Dwayne's grandfather, Peter Maivia, back in the day. Pat was skeptical, but he agreed to come to Tampa to see Dwayne work out, and maybe give him some advice. Dwayne's whole family was there for the big day, including his girlfriend, Danny, who'd never seen him wrestle. She'd never even seen a pro wrestling match in person, only on television. And this was different than television. Rocky and Dwayne faced each other. They'd sketched out a couple of moves, but Dwayne didn't have a gimmick. There was no character to show off, no angle. He was getting by on his athleticism and his ability to sell, which was considerable. His dad slammed him into the mat once, and then again. Dwayne writhed on the ground like his spine had snapped. He was selling, but a little too well. Danny jumped out of her seat. That's enough, she shouted. Dwayne's her. Dwayne popped up off the mat and hopped out of the ring to calm Danny down. His dad and Pat started in on him. You don't stop a match. You don't break the illusion just because your woman is worried. If that's who he was, he didn't have what it took to make it. And with the match paused, Pat Patterson gave some advice. Dwayne was in great shape, but he needed a gimmick to bring it all together. Can you work heel? He asked. Dwayne hadn't considered working heel. He imagined himself a charmer, a natural baby face. He wanted audiences to love him, the way the ladies loved him in high school and in college. But Dwayne loved talking smack as much as he loved flirting, and it came to him just as easily. When the match renewed, Dwayne growled and snarled. His punches were rougher, his moves meaner. Rocky cracked a smile but stifled it. He'd been a face when he was in the ring, and he'd come up against legendary heels, Andre the Giant, the Iron Sheik. He fed into Dwayne's gimmick as long as he could, but the man was in his 50s, and after a few more minutes, he tapped out is too old for this shit. Rocky Johnson had enough. And Pat Patterson had seen enough. He put in a call to Vince McMahon, the most powerful man in professional wrestling, on Dwayne's behalf. And that call got Dwayne a contract and a ticket to the minors. 
It was that call that landed him in a used car dealership's parking lot on a weeknight in Memphis. The crowd, if you could call it that, found spots in the bleachers. They drank tall boys out of paper bags, and the salesmen leaned on Chevys and smoked Marlboro Lights. And they'd be stuck cleaning up at the end of the night, and they were none too happy about it. And the announcer came over to Dwayne. Got a name, kid? Of course. Dwayne Johnson. The announcer shook his head. Can't you do any better than that? Professional wrestling runs on bitter rivalries, real and imaginary. And in the mid-90s, there was no rivalry more bitter or more real than the one between Vince McMahon's World Wrestling Federation and Ted Turner's Upstart Wrestling League World Championship Wrestling. The WCW marketed itself as the edgier alternative to WWF. In 90s parlance, it was extreme wrestling. WCW storylines were soap operas, and the fights were more violent. Like any underdog, they loved taunting their more established competitor. WWF's flagship show at the time was Monday Night Raw, a collection of pre-taped bouts. So the WCW started airing Monday Nitro, broadcast live at the same time. The WCW poached big-name WWF stars like Hulk Hogan and Randy Macho Man Savage. In 1999, they pulled the ultimate insult. In the first minutes of a Monday Nitro broadcast, a WCW announcer spoiled the outcome of the WWF championship bout set to air later that night. Wrestling produced rivalries, but not many friendships. It's tough to stay friends with a guy when you might have to beat the shit out of him the next night. And there were alliances, but mostly for show, to set up the heel turn betrayals that powered storylines. Real friendships were rare, which made The Click such an unusual group. The Click was a backstage alliance, which meant other wrestlers knew about it, but fans didn't. A proto-union made up of Razor Ramon, Triple H, Diesel, and Shawn Michaels. And they were rivals in the ring. Triple H and Diesel were heels, while Ramon and Michaels were faces. But their friendship and star status allowed them to consolidate their booking power to push their own profiles. When one wrestler complained about having to let Diesel go over on him in a match he was scheduled to win, the click forced his name down the card, turning him into the guy who always took the fall, AKA the jobber, a wrestler who lost match after easy match until he quit the business. Vince McMahon wasn't running the WWF as a union shop, and he didn't like anyone but himself holding power. When Razor Ramon and Diesel's contracts ended, McMahon decided not to renew and they were quickly snatched up by the WCW. Their last scheduled bouts were at Madison Square Garden on May 19, 1996. Shawn Michaels defeated Diesel in a cage match. Afterwards, Razor Ramon came into the ring and hugged Michaels goodbye. This was no big deal. Ramon and Michaels were both faces. But then Triple H, a heel, came in and hugged Ramon and Diesel. All four members of the clique shared a group hug and raised their arms in solidarity a veritable fuck you to Vince McMahon in the WWF. It was a huge break of the illusion of wrestling, possibly the biggest in WWF history. It never aired, but there was fan footage and word spread. 
Vince McMahon was livid. He couldn't punish Diesel or Ramon since they were leaving for the WCW, but he buried Triple H in shitty losses for months. Shawn Michaels was too popular to bury that way, but McMahon launched him on a path to a heel turn that would cost him his top ranking. So McMahon needed a new marquee face wrestler. He picked Rocky Maivia. Dwayne Johnson didn't like the name, a combination of his dad's first name and his grandfather's last name. McMahon wanted to play up Dwayne's status as third generation, a legacy wrestler. His nickname was the Blue Chipper, and his costume was, well, you know, the collars you put on a dog after it has surgery or something like that? I don't know. Imagine one of those upside down with blue streamers taped to it. It was quite a look. Rocky Maivia came out of nowhere, winning the Survivor Series in November 1996. He was a fresh, clean-cut babyface. And the fans hated him from the start. He racked up win after win as crowds shouted, die, Rocky, die, and Rocky sucks. He was getting heel reactions with a face gimmick. And there was only one thing to do. A year after his debut, Rocky turned heel. He arched his eyebrow. He insulted crowds, badmouthed his opponents. He called himself The Rock. Almost overnight, he became the greatest villain the WWF had ever seen. Now, the fans loved him. In the past, this kind of behavior might have gotten him booed. Competing with the WCW to see who was edgier, however, the WWF entered what fans dubbed the Attitude Era. Even the good guys weren't that good, and fans preferred to root for the bad guys. In a flurry of catchphrases and signature moves, The Rock rose through the ranks to win 10 WWF World Championships. His sights were already set on the world outside wrestling. After a cameo playing his own father on That 70s Show, The Rock made his film debut in The Mummy Returns in 2001, playing the bad guy. Film audiences, like wrestling audiences, couldn't get enough, and the villain got a spin-off the next year. Somewhere in the media blitz for the Scorpion King, Johnson was a guest on Howard Stern. Stern asked him what might happen if he stopped billing himself as The Rock. Who's going to go to a Dwayne Johnson movie? Stern joked. Dwayne smiled. Maybe he already knew the outcome in advance. A rocket ride from jewel thief to wrestling icon to the highest paid star in Hollywood. It's a story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. 